Welcome guys to Behind the Shield. My name is James Gearing and this is episode 35 and my next guest is a man who I actually worked with about 15 years ago in Japan. I was hired as a stuntman to do the Terminator 2 show and a white-haired gentleman beat the crap out of us for three days on an island in Osaka. That gentleman was Captain Dale Dye, and it wasn't until I discovered who he was that I realized how privileged we were out there. Captain Dye is the man behind the training of the cast of Platoon, Saving Private Ryan, and Band of Brothers, and he also has been in numerous Hollywood productions himself. Uh, he was originally a Marine, a captain in the Marine Corps, um, and the interview is incredible. We cross everywhere from his actual time in the service through to how he got into Hollywood, why he got into Hollywood, um, and some of the stories from these amazing projects. And the three that I've named are probably my three favorite uh, movies that have anything to do with military whatsoever. Um, so what I want to do in this intro, though, before we get into the... The, uh, the interview is just reiterate a project that he talks about. Um, he is going to be crowdsourcing or crowdfunding, I think the word is, um, his latest project, No Better Place to Die. Um, this is the story of the, the D-Day landing on Normandy, um, and his goal is to use as many veterans as he can in the production, um, and he wants to fund it you know, himself, so that way he's free from some of the uh, restraints of the studio money. So after you listen to this incredible interview, I want you guys to go to the links that we have on the website um, and delve in and see if there's any way you can help. I know we have a lot of people listening that are veterans themselves. Um, so really spread the word and really help me help Dale uh, share this project. He was very, very generous with his time on this podcast. And I really want to repay the favor and help be part of the solution and, and spread the word and help him with the funding of this, this movie. Based on the ones he's been involved with so far... This will be the inception of yet another incredible uh, military movie that really will pay uh, homage to the to the guys that lay, truly, truly laid down their lives for our freedom. Um, so that being said, um, I was amazed at this interview. Uh, it, it blew my mind that the man that I was sitting with a bar, in a bar with in, in Osaka 15 years ago was now on the end of the microphone in a completely different capacity. Um and uh, I think that you guys are going to love this interview. Again, share the hell out of it. Rate us on iTunes. Uh, just let's help get uh, this story out. The other episodes are phenomenal as well. So any of the ones that you have, the favorite episodes, please share them. But this one specifically, I really want people to, to take the extra time and uh, think about anyone and anywhere you can share this. And let's help uh, Captain Die get this project off the ground. So without further ado, I introduce to you Captain Dale Dye. Enjoy. Welcome Captain Dye to uh, Behind the Shield. How are you doing today? I'm doing terrific, and thanks for having me here. I think I'm talking to kindred spirits, and that's always a pleasure. Absolutely, you are. And it's, uh, I'm going to delve into this later, but I can't believe that I'm talking to you now, 15 years later as a firefighter, when I was an actor slash stuntman when we last met. So it's, it's been a hell of a journey for both of us, I'm sure. Yeah, you've, you've come a long way. Well done. <laughs> it's, been, uh, it's been interesting. 
All right, so I, I'm pretty sure I don't need to paint a picture for a lot of people as to who you are, but um, I certainly would like to delve into your background a little bit um, and then uh, get to, obviously, where you got to the military and then further on into your Hollywood journey. So um, where were you born and what was your like family unit like? Well, uh, I was, uh, I'm an only child of a, uh, of a mom and dad. Uh, I grew up in southeast Missouri. Uh, the way I say that should indicate that it's the southern part of the state. Um, and um, I, uh, I, I had a, a fairly good family. It got a little fractured. Uh, we had some drinking problems in the, in the family. And, and as a result, um, I kind of um, became a little, I guess, um, I, I became imag- I was an imaginative kid and uh, and I was fascinated by all things military, um, or what I perceived to be all things military. And, and as a consequence, um, while my family tried to hash out their own personal relations, I was uh, uh, sent away to uh, military schools. So from about the fifth grade through uh, uh, the end of high school, I attended military schools, uh, primarily uh, Missouri Military Academy in the northern part of the state. Okay. Did you have military family? Uh, yes, but but they were all nobody was was a professional at it. Uh, they were all World War II guys, and um, and you know they went uh, wherever the draft sent them or wherever they volunteered to go, and it was it was fairly uh, it was a fairly common uh, family lash up. I get you know people people went to war uh, during World War II or were drafted to go to war during World War II, and they came home and forgot all about it to the extent that they could and uh, and got on with their lives. Uh, so I didn't I didn't have anybody that was kind of a, um, a touchstone or a, a figure that said, you know, the military is a great career that that all came from inside me. OK, so so when you uh, graduated from military school, uh, you had your sights set on Annapolis. Is that right? I did. Yeah, um, I desperately wanted to go to the United States Naval Academy. Um, because I, I just thought that was the great stepping stone and I would then become Admiral Dye at some point, uh, <laughs> you know, in my career. Um, but there, it, uh, I had, I had played too many sports and screwed around too much. Uh, so my grades weren't sufficient. Uh, I took the competitive exams, um, and failed them not once, but three times. And, uh, and so it became clear to me that uh, the Naval Academy didn't need me. Thank you very much, uh, Dale Dye. And, uh, and, and so at that point, um, I looked around and said, you know, what, what are you going to do here? Um, what's what's going to happen? And, and there wasn't enough money uh, to go to college. I did, we, were, we were broke from spending everything we had to send me to military schools. And... Um, and there weren't a lot of scholarships out there um, as, as there is now, not a lot of government money or anything like that. So you had to work your way through. Um, and, and I just I couldn't afford to do anything. And it was really a, a low point in my life. Uh, and this was November. Uh, it was the fall of 1963. Um, and in November of that year, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. Now, the link here is that while I was a military school cadet, I was a cadet officer, and I marched in President Kennedy's uh, inauguration parade in Washington. Uh, the 
a unit from Missouri Military Academy was brought up to march in the parade. I was a member of that unit. Uh, and I, I remembered the impact of, of Kennedy's inaugural speech in which he said, uh, among many other things, he said, uh, ask not what you can do for your country. Uh, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Um, and that had always stuck with me. Well, at this low point um, in the fall of 1963, when I really um, didn't know what I was going to do, there didn't seem to be any options out there, I still had that flag-waving adventure, grass is greener on the other side of the, of the hill spirit in me. And I thought, you know, um, maybe President Kennedy, God bless him, was right. Uh, I should ask what I can do for my country. And I was walking down Pine Street in St. Louis, Missouri at, uh, at uh, one point uh, with snow falling and I was cold and miserable and didn't seem to have any future. And I saw this poster and it had a picture of a Marine in dress blue uniform. And he was, he was beautiful. He was the rock. And I looked at it and the, and the wording said, Marines, are you ready? And I said, you know, by God, I think I am. So I went in and uh, without, I didn't look at the Army. I didn't look at the Navy. I didn't look at the Air Force. I went right to the Marine recruiter and I said, send me, send me. And, uh, and he signed me up and I was on my way to uh, basic training boot camp um, in uh, the third day of January 1964. That, that's the beginning of it all. Wow. Yeah, it's funny how that, that phrase, um, when the student is ready, the master will appear. And, you know, you, you're knocking on one career and thinking that's going to be it. And then, and then uh, a moment of clarity hits and you realize that you're on the wrong path all along. That's very Buddhist of you, Gearing. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. <laughs> well, I just wanted to, to reel back for a second. Did you not play an admiral in uh, Steven Seagal's film Under Siege? I did. In fact, two of them. Uh, the, the Under Siege and then a sequel, I played a, a Navy Admiral. And it, believe me, the irony did not escape me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then um, let me see here. So I guess a, a very important question then. So right now you're a raw recruit. So you've spent your life giving boot camps to other people, whether it's you know in the military and then certainly uh, these actors that we'll get to later in the podcast. But what was your initial experience of your own boot camp? Well, um, Marine boot camp in those days, and this is 1964, the very beginning of 1964, was a tough road to hoe. Not, not that it isn't now, but it, it was different in character. Um, it was very physical and very focused. And I ate it like pudding. I mean, I loved it. It, it, it reflected on the, on the training that I'd had in military school. Uh, it provided me a focus and got me out of myself, got me um, you know, made me quit crying the poor ass and, and thinking, woe is me. And it, it really gave me something to look for. So um, despite, you know, the depredations of Marine drill instructors, uh, and everybody's heard those stories or seen Full Metal Jacket, it was like that. Um, I, I managed to graduate uh, with honors. Uh, and uh, I chose to um, go the infantry route. Um, I had high scores and various other things relative to the other guys in my platoon and my recruit platoon. Um, and so I probably could have, you know, gotten electronics technician or communicator or something like that. I, 
just that didn't seem the right thing. The right thing seemed to be to go to the heart of the Marine Corps, which was the infantry. And so I begged and wheedled and, and got myself assigned there. Uh, so then I went to uh, Camp Pendleton, California, here on the West Coast, um, and joined a unit to learn to be an 81-millimeter mortarman. Uh, I did that for about a year, a year and a half, I guess, and, uh, and I frankly became bored. I have this really low tolerance for boredom. Um, once I had learned all, I, all they expected of a private first class or a lance corporal at that point, um, I, I wanted to do something more. I knew there was a huge facet of the huge facets of the Marine Corps in aviation and armor and and all the other things that the Marine Corps does and does so well. And I wanted to see that. I wanted to be part of that, but I couldn't. I couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, and then one day, uh, once again, the the master shows up when you need him, and uh, I ha- I met a guy, uh, a sergeant in the Marine Corps who uh, was out among us with a, with a camera around his neck, and he was marching right along with us and humping right along with us and doing everything else. And I got to talking to him, and I said, who the hell are you? You know, what do you, what do, you do? And he said, well, I'm a Marine Corps combat correspondent. And I said, what's that? And he said, look, it is the biggest deal, unknown and hidden, that the Marine Corps has. And here's why. You can do anything in the world that the Marine Corps does on the guise of writing a little story and taking a few pictures about it, which will appear and you know be released to civilian media and will appear in in uh, uh, Marine Corps publications. And you can do anything. You can go anywhere as long as you've got that talent to wordsmith, to tell a little story. Well, I've been... I mean, as a legacy of my father, um, I've always been a storyteller, and uh, and I loved the business of communicating and talking to people and seeing their reactions. Um, and I so, so I said, you know, I I think this may be what the answer that I'm looking for. And so, despite um, harassment and, and depredations of various kinds, I managed to change what's called my MOS or my military occupational specialty. And uh, became a, a Marine Corps combat correspondent. And, and the only basis for that, really, uh, was the fact that I had edited uh, my high school newspaper when I was in military school. That was, that was sufficient uh, in those days in the Marine Corps. So I became a Marine Corps combat correspondent. And, and it really uh, did pay off the way the sergeant promised me. Uh, I was able to go anywhere and practically do anything. And I really got a big look. I got a macro look at who the Marine Corps is, who Marines are, who, what the Marine Corps is. Uh, and that was the answer. Right then I knew, okay, if I can stay in this groove and every time I get bored, I can jump off and fly in a helicopter. Or I can go over here and shove 105 millimeter howitzer rounds in an artillery piece. Uh, if I can just stay there, I'm cool. And... Uh, and it, it went that way. It was really, really good. And then suddenly I got this set of orders that said, um, at that point, I think Sergeant Die, uh, you will report to um, Marine Forces, Western Pacific, Fleet Marine Force Pacific. And it didn't say, but we all knew where that was. And that was Vietnam. And you, am I right in thinking that you were one of the very first uh, units that was sent over there? 
Um, no, um, there was a full division over there at the at the point uh, I went in, and uh, and I I joined the next division to go in, which was the first Marine Division. The third Marine Division had already been there, but I joined the first Marine Division. Right now, I just wanted to reel back for a second. So, when you were in boot camp, um, obviously you saw a smorgasbord of of I guess mental and physical ability. You, unlike you know many uh, periods of the armed services, you actually got to see not just you know one war but but two conflicts. At that point, how did what was your observation of how well your peers had performed in boot camp versus how well they performed in uh, actual combat? Well, um, you know, I, I guess like any recruit training platoon, regardless of the service. Um, you got some winners and you got some losers, and the losers are always going to tag a little behind. And certainly that was that was my case. I tried to be up among the leaders uh, because that was the best way to survive. Uh, but I saw in the building of us as Marines, I saw that that eternal warrior spirit um, that says and teaches you and preaches um, that. It's not about you. It's about the mission. It's about the survival of the unit. And it's about the guy on your left and the guy on your right. And and I recognized that. I saw that bigger picture. And when I got to Vietnam, um, I saw it play out. Um, the interesting thing about uh, war um, or being involved in combat operations is that you can see the full gamut of human behavior and human emotions, from the absolute worst to the very, very best. Um, and I observed that, and I saw it, and I, I like to think, in fact, I know, um, that the majority of the Marine units I ran with uh, had that spirit instilled in them from the time that they graduated from boot camp. And, and it held, and it held in the face of enormous adversity in in the in extremis um, that that spark and that spirit which the drill instructors had instilled was always still there um, you know it it got shaded here and it got shaded there but it was always there when when the nut cutting came uh, these guys would get up and go even at the risk of their lives and I saw that many 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 times right see it's, it's- I've noticed a, a common denominator as well that I've interviewed Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Delta Force, and in some of their you know worst case stories, uh, often when they've they've lost uh, brothers out there, it seems like almost every single story they take a moment and say we were we were assigned to X Marine unit, and they were some of the most you know courageous men that we've ever sort of fought alongside. Um, yeah, we we build them we build them in a strange fashion. Um, but what we recognize and, and what I wish in many cases other services um, would realize um, is that if, if you can locate and keep hammering, keep teaching that eternal warrior spirit, uh, that selflessness, that, that, that self-sacrifice, you're, you're going to build people who will tear down walls for you, who will run through the walls uh, and get it done. And I think that's what 
the SEALs that you talk to and the Green Berets that you talk to and everything else, uh, they recognize that. Now, I grant you they call us knuckle-draggers and nose-tippers, <laughs> you know, I get that. Um, and guilty as charged in some cases. You know, the Marine Corps philosophy is primarily, hey, diddle-diddle right up the middle, fix bayonets and the hell with the consequences. Um, we, we, have a, we have a reputation uh, in that regard. Uh, it's not true, but it's fun to laugh about. Um, and I think I think that other services, um, special operators, the high-speed, low-drag guys, they recognize that. And they recognize that it goes all the way down to Rudy in the rear rank with a rusty rifle. I mean, it's not just a guy who's, who's volunteered four times and been through all the high-speed training in the world. In the Marine Corps, it's right down to that guy with a rusty bayonet and not much else going on, but he's going to do it. And, and that's the spirit, I think, that I admire so much. And what do you think, what is it in the training, what is it in the boot camp and that journey that Marines go through that creates this mindset in these men? And uh, you have to educate me for a moment. Are there, are there women Marines now? Yes, there are. Okay, so I want to make sure I cover male and female. Okay, so these sure. these men yeah. and women, uh, male and female Marines. What is it that that creates that in uh, that strength and that courage in the mindset? I think it's an understanding of an appreciation for our heritage, our legacy, James. Uh, unlike many of the other services, we don't just offer a Marine Corps history class. We live it. Uh, and we we revisit it constantly, and we demand that Marines study it. And and what that does is it imbues in the individual Marine a sense that he is a link in a long, long, long chain, um, and that the worst thing he can do or she can do um, is to do something that that breaks that chain, that rusts that chain, that diminishes that legacy, and. and it really works. I mean, we carry that. I carry it to this day. Um, I carry an awareness that I am the legacy. I am the heritage of Marines who went before me and did fantastic things uh, all the way back to the birth of our nation. Um, now, that's not to say that the Navy, the Army, the Air Force didn't do absolutely fantastic things also. They did. Uh, but we preach it, live it, and make sure that every Marine is constantly aware of it. And I think that's really the difference. Right. Yeah, I think that there's a movement to to plant that back into, I mean, the fire service, I can see, I'm sure, uh, uh, law enforcement as well. But there are some, you know, very many men and women that have never lost that in, in the fire service. But as technology has advanced and, and politics have come in, um, that's been threatened a little bit. And, and I think it, there's, it there's, has. It has, James, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but, no, but I have thought about this. I've thought about this. I've thought about, you know, look, if if I am a police officer or a firefighter um, in St. Louis, Missouri, or, or in uh, Melbourne, Australia, uh, my heritage and legacy is the ancient volunteer fire services in Melbourne, or the Keystone Cops sort of um, block patrols as a policeman in St. Louis. Um, there is a, and that's fine, and it works in that smaller context, in that community context. What, what I'm advocating and, and what I'm admiring 
is the larger devotion to the nation, not just to the neighborhood in Melbourne or the neighborhood in St. Louis, a larger devotion to the nation. Uh, and I, I think I think we have diminished firefighters and policemen, uh, firefighters and policemen's view of that. Uh, they become colloquial. They become localized. That's understandable. Their their responsibility is that is this is safeguarding that community. I understand, but there's a larger heritage. It's the heritage of every volunteer fireman everywhere in the world who has rushed uh, to save lives and property. It's the heritage of every police officer who's run down uh, a wild shooter or or a, uh, a traffic speeder that's that, that's potentially uh, killing lives that or, or taking lives that are put lives at risk. I'll, I'll get this right in a minute. That the point is that I think that larger picture is something we've lost, uh, especially among policemen and firefighters. I get why, um, but I think we'd be well served to return to the fact that I'm not only a police officer for uh, Clayton County, Missouri, or I'm not only a firefighter for North Melbourne. I am part of the system, the mechanism that keeps the citizens of the world safe. This just happens to be my little part of the patch. I think we'd be better to go back to that realization and to preach it and to teach it. Yeah, and and I think I, that's exactly how I see it. I was my I, my dad tried to get me to go in the army as a PTI, physical training instructor, in back in England. And at the time when I was growing up, the Falklands Islands War was happening, and and even to my very young mind, it seemed. I couldn't get my head around why so many people died for you know a rock covered in penguins to to simplify it, oversimplify it. Um, but so, had you been taught correctly, you would have seen that. Yeah, and that's the thing. So, but I I knew I had a calling, and I and I went through a very winding career path. I mean, I was a lifeguard for a while, which was serving. But then you know when when you and I met, I was in the the stunt industry, and I, I found that very unfulfilling. I was good at it to a point. I was I wasn't I wouldn't say I was a good actor, but I mean the, the physical stuff, the fighting and everything, I was good. But I was so unfulfilled. you were always a very good faller. <laughs> you fell well, James. I I, I pride myself on my falling. <laughs> <laughs> but when I became a fireman, it, it that was my calling. That was. I realized that that was what I was supposed to contribute to my nation, and my nation happened to be the U.S. by that point. But I wasn't supposed to be a soldier. I was supposed to be, you know, a soldier within within the country and protect the men and women against fire, against car crashes, against all these other things that we mitigate in the fire service. And so I agree 100%. We are part of this big jigsaw puzzle, and I think that's that's the same view as as how I regard the 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 kind of the political. Uh, the mess is the wrong word, but the way the way that people look at politics is they're looking to this one person at the top to change the country instead of realizing that they are the ones that can change the country. And if every fireman and policeman in their community does their job well, the country's going to be great, you know, and everyone else does their part too. James, you, you've almost hit it. Um, and, and what I'm perceiving, you know, I travel a lot. I'm all over this nation, all over the world, as a matter of fact. Um, and here's what I'm perceiving. And all you have to do is open-mindedly watch the news. And you'll see what I perceive as a public groundswell, a groundswell from the, the previously ignored 
people of this nation and several other nations. Uh, England and the United States are the mo- or UK and the United States are are the most obvious and and uh, uh, publicized examples. But what's happening here is that is that folks are saying, you know, enough of this crapola, enough of this. I am the nation. I am the heartland. I am the government. I am the person that our government, regardless of whether it's UK or US, I am the person that our government is designed to serve. And I'm going to demand that it serve me. Uh, We're seeing that. Uh, I think our most recent election um, in the United States is a classic example of it. Um, and I think what's happening in UK and France right now as a result of uh, recent terrorist attacks is a classic example of that. People are saying, this is my country, my responsibility, I'm going to stand up and do something about it. And, and that's marvelous. Uh, I think what you're going to see, um, if, if I were to predict, and here I am predicting, uh, I think you're going to see a great groundswell of support uh, for police and firemen first responders of all types, um, because the nation is saying, look, uh, I, I get it. Uh, these guys are selfless, and it's about time we've got, we, we appreciate and celebrate a little selflessness, and you guys are going to be the benefactors of that. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's a double-edged sword as well, and part of my whole reason for doing this podcast is to take care of my fellow first responders, but the other part is to create ownership in the fact that if you are in this role, you also have to rise to the level of training and expectation that this job requires. So when, excuse my language, but when the shit hits the fan, you sure as hell better be ready to, to perform whatever duty that you have been, you know, recruited to do. Yes, indeed. And you know, you know, at least I tried to teach you that there is What really counts in that instance when the shit does hit the fan, or as we say as an officer, when the defecation hits the isolation, (laughs) it's it's at that moment when training counts less than motivation. Sure, you've got to know how to use an OBA, and you've got to know to crawl instead of walk into uh, smoke-filled rooms and, and so on and so forth. You have to know all of those things, but that becomes muscle memory. What's really key and crucial in those moments is motivation. I need to do this because it is my duty, not because I get paid to do it. Um, and, and that's where you've got to go. That's where, that's where first responders around the world have to go. Uh, it can't, it cannot, it must not be just a job. If it's just a job, you're going to screw it up and people are going to die because you're unwilling to take that risk when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I want to I want to kind of take that and, and bring it back to uh, to your your combat experience. So, obviously, what one of the problems that we have is fear, and and I'm not talking about pulling up to a raging house fire um, and being scared to go in, but also just fear of looking in the mirror and realizing that you haven't trained as much as you you should, and and kind of shying away instead of stepping up and saying today is the day. So, how did you? Again, coming from boot camp but not seeing combat, how did you combat the fear when you actually saw combat for the first time? And then in, and well, then, so in your career as well. Fear can be a tool, and it should be. I don't know anybody who faces uh, um, life-threatening situations, whether it's a policeman, a firefighter, 
um, a first responder of any sort uh, or a, a military man or woman on the battlefield. Uh, you realize very quickly that it's it's way, way too damn easy to die here. Um, and usually you've got reasons to live or you wouldn't be there. Um, and so you you learn to use, in my case, you learn to use fear as a tool. Um, you must learn to control it. Uh, that takes a certain amount of psychological courage more than it does physical courage. Um, the key is not to let fear own you. You've got to own it. And if you own it, uh, it becomes it becomes a real tool. It becomes something that teaches you. Uh, when, when you survive a situation uh, where your life is on the line, and certainly this was uh, the case with me, um, if you're not a complete dumbass, you're going to learn how you did that, or you're going to see how other people did it, and you're going to think about it a little bit. At least you should, um, and you're, you're going to see that the, the people that you admired and who did those wonderful things um, against all odds in combat or in this raging four-story fire or, or against a barricaded hostage situation, you're going to see that those people were afraid, naturally. They'd be inhuman if they weren't, um, but they have managed to conquer it. They've managed to live with that fear. They've managed to use the fear as a tool. Uh, I don't think I don't think I've ever met, nor would I want to meet. Certainly not fight with um, a human being who was uh, completely absent fear. Uh, that's unnatural and frankly uh, insane. Um, we're all, we're all born with a desire to live and 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 save our lives. Um, and, and so we all feel fear. Uh, but fear, fear needs to be a tool. It needs to be something that we learn about ourselves. We learn about life. Uh, we learn about a bigger picture uh, that, that can mute that fear because we know there is a mission to be done and it must be done. Uh, you, you must use fear as a tool. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know how this is going to sound, but you must not be afraid of fear. Fear is natural. Fear is there. Um, the key is you need to be the guy who doesn't show it. Um, if you can do that, uh, despite feeling it raging throughout your body and screaming for survival, if you can do that, you will survive and you will learn from that fear. Okay, yeah, that, that reminds me a lot of, of boxers or MMA fighters. When, when you watch them in the ring or in the cage, they're like, how how are they so calm? And then you hear interviews after. It's like, well, it's just a, a pretending game. I'm acting. I'm actually terrified inside. But you know, it's it's whoever plays the role best usually out uh, out psychs the opponent. Yeah, I've always I've always said, and I still believe that professional soldiers are among the world's greatest actors, um, and and serving um, in extremis uh, in wartime. Um, is the best acting school there is, uh, if you do it well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, speaking of fear, um, again, please correct me if I'm wrong. I want to make sure my facts are correct. So you're a recipient of three Purple Hearts, which means yeah. that you were wounded in combat. The so enemy marksmanship badge. Yeah. 
Um, so that obviously means that you return to combat, you know, at least two or three times having had a near career ending injury. Mm. So what? let's, let's, let's clarify some points. Here. Please. You're injured in a car accident or when you fall off a bar stool in combat, you're wounded. Wounded. Okay. And that's an important distinction. All right, go ahead. You All may right. now carry on. The civilian mistake. I apologize. All right. Um, <laughs> so you're wounded in combat. So my, my big point I want to make is obviously you're, you know, you, you're taken away from, from the battleground for a while. What was it inside you that, that drove you to get back each time having been wounded in combat? I, I think it was there – were, there were two things. There was, there was a personal thing and there was a, a larger uh, psychological issue, I guess. Um, the, the personal thing was, look, I am, I'm in the military for the long run. Um, I've got to learn to live with this. I've got to learn to live with being wounded. Um, as, um, as the price you pay, it's the cost of doing business, assuming you don't get a leg blown off or get killed. Um, so you need to get back on that horse that threw you. Um, and, and I felt, I knew that if I didn't do that, uh, fear would conquer me and I couldn't have that. And there was a larger issue, I guess this is the second issue, James, to, to try to answer your question. Um, I knew that there were people out there who needed me, uh, who had relied on me, and the jeopardy that they faced would be worse were I not there, or were I to, to take the opportunity to just say, okay, I'm, I'm through, I've been hit. I'm going to go over here and, and go back to the States and serve at Camp Pendleton or something. Um, so those were, those were the things that were on my mind. Um, and I'm awfully glad that I responded that way. Yeah, that, uh, that ties in very, very directly to kind of what we're fighting at the moment with uh, but physical and mental injuries with the, with the PTSD that we're seeing in some first responders is I, I think there's, there's, we're fighting a battle, especially with the mental stuff, to get it recognized by some of these entities that we work for. However, on the flip side, as as an individual and the ownership side, I think we need to recognize as first responders that the goal is to to, to take time off if given the time to to recover, to heal, whether it's a physical traumatic injury or a mental injury. But then the ultimate goal is exactly like you said, to get back out there and, and stand alongside your brothers and sisters and, and perform your duties until you retire. PTSD is too easy. Um, and it has become an industry. Uh, I object to it. I think I certainly grant and admit and have experienced uh, post-traumatic stress, um, but I think the strong individual handles it and understands it. And that, that may take some group therapy or it may take some explaining or understanding but we cannot allow it to become the cash cow cop-out that it has become right now. We cannot, we cannot allow uh, the first police officer who, gets, uh, who busts a couple of caps at, at a criminal who's busting caps back at him to suddenly quit and say, you know, uh, I'm now uh, so mentally stressed uh, by, this, uh, by the firefight that I was in um, that I'm going to go 
on hiatus. I'm not sure what it's called in the in police forces. Um, and and I'm going to get treatment, and I'm going to draw my full pay, and or I'm going to retire immediately because here's an opportunity uh, to do so. That's not character. And if there's one solid benefit of of a traumatic experience or repetitive traumatic experiences, it's that it can and should build character. Right. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a a correlation as well between, um, I think, the mental health of first responders and and the shift work and and the sleep deprivation they're exposed to as opposed to, you know, predominantly what they see. Um, And I I think that there's there's a a term they use now called post-traumatic growth which is exactly mm. what you're talking about. They, they yeah, have an incident, exactly. they get treatment, and they come back stronger than they were before, the resiliency. Well, you know, I, and I, people, I can hear your audience screaming right now, easier <laughs> said than done, die, easier said than done. Look, I, I went through it. I went through it, so I get it. I am, I am empathetic. But, but here's the thing. If, if you will fight it, if you will understand it, and thereby deal with it effectively, uh, it, it will increase your motivation. It will give you an understanding of why you put yourself in that particular situation. And you did. You volunteered to be a firefighter. You volunteered to be a soldier. You volunteered to be a cop. So those things kind of go with the territory. And you have to understand it. You have to deal with it. And, and you deal with it by understanding that macro picture motivation, I'm here to help, I'm here to save lives. In short, it ain't about me. It's about the good of my community, uh, the safety of its citizens, uh, the safety of my nation, uh, or the survival of my nation. That's what you've got to do. That's where you've got to go when you're fighting this traumatic um, experience. You've, you've got to say, look, this is part and parcel of my chosen lifestyle, my chosen way of life, my chosen profession. It is something that happens. It is something that I can be strong enough to deal with. I must deal with it because the neighborhood, the nation, the county, the state relies on me to do this. I must not cop out. I must find that motivation again. That's how you deal with PTSD. Right. And I, w- I want to clarify, uh, not clarify, but focus on one moment when, I think it was the last time I saw you actually, we finished the boot camp and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and we went to a bar, and if you remember, in Osaka, Japan. Me? A bar? <laughs> and we, we may have been a little, uh, a little drunk, but we started talking about, and it was very brief, but we talked, you know, I think I'd asked you, you know, had had you taken a life and i'm sure now looking back the worst thing you can ask a fireman is what's the worst thing you've ever seen and i'm sure the worst thing you can ask a soldier is tell me about your experience killing but i remember you saying that you'd taken one life with a knife now i had uh, lieutenant colonel dave grossman on the show a mm. few episodes ago and he great guy dave yeah it was a phenomenal really? interview but one of his things was the most traumatic thing a soldier can do is to take a life at that close combat with with a with a knife. That was the worst. So, um, uh, you know, for you to have done that yourself, um, you know, I'm just putting you on that in that place where, in in his philosophy and his teachings, that is the 
the most vivid and, and I guess most mentally traumatic of uh, combat uh, experiences. And, and like you said, you, you managed to get through that. Yeah, it's um, look when when the killing is done at a at a range where you can smell the other guy's breath, um, and you see the stark terror in his eyes that is obviously reflected in yours. Um, as Dave Grossman says, and and God bless him, that is a guy who really understands the soldier's heart, um, the the spirit of the warrior. I I've read everything Dave has uh, written and. Uh, and and lived by it. He's got wonderful insights. So if if you haven't read on killing and and uh, that sort of thing by Dave Grossman, get it um, and read it. But um, he's he's correct. Um, those traumas, the experience of having to take a life. Look, I what what I remember most about it was that it didn't bother me at the time. Uh, it bothered me about two days later when I was laying uh, on a poncho looking up through a triple canopy jungle um, at the stars. And I, I don't know exactly what prompted it, but it was at that point I had this huge moral crisis. Um, like a lot of uh, people, I'd, I'd grown up in a sort of Judeo-Christian uh, upbringing and, you know, the big, the big mortal sin is thou shalt not kill. And when, when you're involved in shooting at the other guy or fighting with the other guy and he's fighting with you, um, you can write it off to survival. You know, I, I had to do that or I, I, would, I would have been dead myself. Uh, and that works for a little while. But suddenly, you, you, the old Sunday school and church teachings start coming back. Um, assuming you've had Sunday school and teach, uh, church and that sort of thing. Too many people don't these days. But um, when, when you start reflecting on that, you, you say, oh, my God, I am doomed. I have, I have taken another life. Uh, I've committed the most mortal of sins. Um, and I'm condemned to hell for, you know, when I die. And that could be tomorrow. Uh, so that... <laughs> When when you get into that area, um, it is it is really difficult. Um, that's when your your strength of mind, your ability to reason with yourself, um, and and not rationalize, just just face it and and give yourself that solid, stern talking to uh, that says, "Look, wake up, realize what the real world is about. Here it is." Um, you did this and you had to do it and, uh, it was you or him, uh, fortunately for you, it was him. Um, and, and you've got to learn to live with that. So th those were, those were my experiences and, uh, and I was able to fight my way through it. I was able to rationalize, uh, sufficiently for mental stability, uh, what had happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously as a fireman, I have no, no concept of what that was like, but it, it kind of struck me again right before i was uh getting ready to interview you that that whole conversation just kind of sprung back in my mind and uh you know it's funny 15 years 15 years later i get to ask you about it again from a totally different angle well it's funny with firefighters you know um, i've i've spoken with a number of them um 
especially uh, here in Los Angeles and, and uh, Chicago and Detroit and other big city areas. And a lot of those guys, um, I, I don't know whether I should say this or not, and I'm not going to name any names, but they go armed. And they have to because when they're responding to the fire and so on and so forth, they'll have gang members and, you know, bangers and so on and so forth. They'll try to take them down. Um, and I've always thought that was an interesting and little known aspect of big city firefighting. Yeah. Well, another experience I've had as a fireman, I've worked in some pretty awful areas in, in the West Coast and the East Coast, is that there, there's that threat of that, especially in initiations. You know, you kill a fireman and you get into the gang. Um, but the other side is, is certainly outside the gangs, um, is the some of the the most desperate people in society whether it's uh, you know prostitutes or or drug dealers or whatever obviously they're terrified of the police but when you roll down um especially in, in a rescue like an ambulance that we we ride in you're the only hope they've got so when you show up on scene anyone else on the planet they'd probably be robbing or killing but to you they're they're the only you know they're the we're the ones that are going to be saving them if it hits the fan so yeah, it's a very weird experience. You're, you're talking about rational people there. I'm not. Yeah. Um, so, but I, but I get it. And you're the firefighter, and I stand um, instructed. Yeah. No, but I'm saying, but but the guys in some of the other cities is probably a very different experience. I know in in Anaheim, you know, in California, when I worked there, you know, you're scraping up 14, 15 year old kids that have been shot in a park, and you know, there's there's no sense of you know, protecting some apartment complex that their parents rented that month. You know, yeah. just, I mean, there's no rational thinking behind that at all. I get it. So, all right. Well, I want to make sure that we uh, we touch, you know, the second part of your career, um, which is obviously how you got into Hollywood. Uh, so um, what was it that made you want to finally uh, retire from the military? And then secondly, obviously, what was it that what was your goal for for trying to get into Hollywood? Well, look, um I had been in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, with the Marine Corps in 1982 and 83. I was a captain at that point, uh, having done 13 years uh, enlisted and then gone to officer candidate school. Um, and um, I could see the situation in Beirut uh, by early 1983. I could see it developing. And I knew that uh, if we didn't take a hand in this, if we didn't get rid of the political considerations that were being put on by the State Department, um, some people were going to get killed. I mean, the shooting was already starting. And, uh, and so I left Beirut, uh, I guess, in the summer of uh, 83. And uh, by the fall of 83, there was a bombing um, that killed um, 250-some uh, Marines. And, uh, and that really kind of broke my heart. Uh, it kind of broke my warrior spirit for the first time, uh, despite adversity, uh, despite my own combat experiences, um, because I, I viewed it as unnecessary. We shouldn't have been put in a situation and then had our hands tied and been restricted. So I was I was really down. I was really brokenhearted because so many of those guys who died uh, were good friends of mine, and uh, and I just saw it as as. We, we got betrayed. We, the, we let the politicians direct what we should do on the battlefield, and that, that's deadly. And, it, of course, it had deadly consequences in October of, uh, of uh, 1983. 
So um, I began to think, you know, maybe I'm not the guy I started out to be. Uh, maybe I'm not the guy who can wave his hand and say, follow me, Marines, it is necessary for us to die. Um, that's who I'd always seen myself as. And, and that kind of took some wind out of my sails. And so I started to look around for something to do. Um, I had enough time in to retire. Um, and so I decided to do that. And I got a job with, uh, uh, a think a publication called Soldier of Fortune magazine. Um, which supposedly was going to capitalize on my journalistic abilities. Uh, but in actuality, uh, what it turned out to be was going into Central America and uh, training uh, the contra-revolutionary forces um, in El Salvador, Honduras, and uh, um, um, Costa Rica. And so um, I was essentially back in uniform, if you will, and I was down there training guerrilla forces. And then along came Iran-Contra, and um, what, we were, what we were doing kind of on the QT down there suddenly became very public and pissed off Congress no end. And so that, that work kind of fell out. And I was really at a loss. I mean, I had formally retired, uh, didn't know what to do, um, and, and I, I really began to, to kind of do a period of, of self-examination. You know, what can I bring to the table? I mean, I've been shot too many times to want to be a cop on America's mean streets. Um, if, if I um, became a corporate cubicle rat, you know, I would have ended up on a bar stool or killed myself in six months. <laughs> Me um, too. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know the drill. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't stand the thought of being a defense contractor. I'd seen the inside of that mess before. Um, and so I, I really needed to find something that would that would reward me, appeal to my creative side, and allow me to you know make a little money and pay the bills. And so I, I suddenly glommed onto the thought that you know I had been a movie fan all my life. Uh, I'd seen every military movie there was, I think, at that point, and the common denominator was there that most of them pissed me off. Uh, they just didn't reflect who we are, how we behave, how we talk, how we walk. Um, there were terrible, uh, what I thought was misrepresentations. Are you saying that John, that John Wayne didn't capture the uh, soldier's John, life? John, no, John, John Wayne is always perfect. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the scripts he had to act. Um, the, in other words, the writers and the producers and the directors didn't get it. Uh, and certainly the actors didn't get it. Uh, and I began to wonder why. So I, I, just on a whim, really, I came out here to L.A. and I began to try to talk to people. I began to try to find people, you know, on movie lots and, and, and started trying to circulate and say, do you work in movies? Tell me about it, you know. And what I discovered was for years before I ever came on the scene, uh, Hollywood had had what they called technical advisors. And I'm making little air quotes here. Um, and this was some guy, you know, usually who had done six months in the California National Guard, and he was the director's brother-in-law. And, uh, and they'd pay him $500 and sit him in a chair and wake him up whenever they wanted to know which side the ribbons went on on his, on his uniform. Um, but there was, there was very little attempt. I mean, those guys did an admirable job for what they were allowed to do. 
which is to, you know, teach you how to wear the uniform, teach you how to carry and fire the weapon, how to load it. And that's fine. But it is so superficial, so shallow. What I thought was missing and, and, and what I was convinced was missing after a little investigation was some way to train those actors and teach those producers and teach those directors that what soldiers are really like and what they really do and how they really relate to each other is more dramatic than anything someone who's never been in uniform can dream up. Uh, and so that was my pitch. I said, look, uh, what I want to do is take these actors uh, and I want to immerse them in the world of a combat soldier for as long as you'll let me. And my promise is when I bring them down, they will understand the military. They will understand the soldiers. They will understand the emotions and the psychology and the relationships that form. Uh, that was a tough sell. Uh, you know, people told me, well, look, we've been making military movies for decades and, you know, we don't need some clown like you coming in and tell us, telling us we're doing it all wrong. We've made zillions of dollars on these things. Yeah, but there was a way to do it better and there was a way to support my agenda. And my agenda was very simple, to shine some long overdue and very much deserved light on the men and women who wear our military uniform and what they do. Uh, and so that was my agenda. And I thought that, you know, given that we're a media saturated society and we're all nuts over video and that sort of thing, um, it would be nice if I could get them to read history books that say that, but that's not going to happen. Um, so I took the mountain to Muhammad. I said, I will, I will go into the popular media and teach this and attempt to demonstrate this. Very hard sell. But I finally met a guy. Um, well, actually, I found a guy who um, was going to do a movie about Vietnam based on his own experiences as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. Well, that was a rare bird in Hollywood, believe me. And his name was Oliver Stone. And uh, I was able to get to him and do this pitch that I'm doing to you. Tell him why I thought so many uh, military movies, so many war movies, um, didn't get to the heart of the issue, didn't get to the heart of the matter. Uh, fortunately, based on his own personal experience, uh, he understood it. He said, you know, I think you're right. And so he allowed me to take uh, 33 actors, including uh, some who are big names now and weren't then, uh, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, uh, Forrest Whitaker, Johnny Depp, um, take them all into uh, Charlie Sheen, take them all into the jungles of the Philippines, the Philippine mountains south of Manila, and make them live for three weeks like Oliver and I lived as young 19 and 20 year olds uh, in Vietnam. Uh, it worked magically. What I discovered was um, every evening I would have a stand down, and this would be the time when they could ask me questions. Um, and I was able to teach essentially philosophy, teach psychology, teach emotion, redefine love. And those things were what they, what they really ate. They ate it like breakfast pastry. I mean, they, they got this stuff. And when we brought them down out of the, uh, out of the mountains, and we began to shoot this little $5 million picture, that's all we had, uh, called Platoon. 
um, it was, I knew we had caught lightning in a bottle. And when we brought it home, uh, it won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director from Oliver, for Oliver. And uh, he was kind enough at the Academy Awards uh, to credit me with, with much of the success of the film. And that was the real launch point of my career. Yeah, I mean, anyone that's watched Platoon, uh, excuse me, Platoon, <laughs> um, can can see with this the tension between Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger and their their characters, and then the, just the the thousand yard stare and and the senselessness of so many of the combat scenes that it was completely different than any war movie that certainly that I'd ever seen. I was still somewhat young then, but I mean, that's because the actors understood it. Yeah, and they you, weren't you, just mimicking they no, understood it no and, and you could see that absolutely and i think uh you know that that really just redefined what uh you know a war movie should be and i think you truly you know set the new baseline for everything that was made after that well i i uh i hope that's true um james the the i i, I did some press interviews and i do them way too often including this one but um a a writer uh, here in L.A. said that Captain Dale Dye literally changed the way Hollywood makes war movies. And I thought, well, if that's true, uh, that'd be a great epitaph. I'd be happy to have that on my gravestone. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, if, if you asked me and, and I didn't know we'd never worked together and I didn't know you were attached to any of these movies and you asked me name, you know, your, your three favorite war movies, I tell you right now, it'd be Platoon, Band of, well, Band of Brothers is a TV series. And then yeah. Saving Private Ryan. And you obviously yeah. were integral in all three of those productions. I was. I was very fortunate. Um, the neat thing is people like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis and, and um, a number of, uh, of other great directors that I've worked with and who really taught me filmmaking, some of the most creative people in the world, um, they understood what I was trying to do and they realized its value. So I've been exceedingly fortunate in that regard. Yeah. Now, I, I even played a firefighter once. Oh, did you? Which which project was that? A film a Steven Spielberg film called Always. Oh, okay. I was I was the fire boss, <laughs> and I never again want to wear fire gel and run through butane flames again. But that's what I did. <laughs> there you go. So I want to ask you about that. Then, so when you first came out of the military, um, obviously. My experience with you was I was at that point a civilian stuntman, and um, I think most of our cast were stunt performers, and then we had some some straight actors as well. Um, what what was it like coming from working with with soldiers to working with actors? Which you know, I'm, I'm no offense to my actor friends, I got many of them, but they're kind of a polar opposite. One one you know fundamentally one wants the world to watch them and the other is putting their life on the line for the world yeah and and i quickly realized that and i quickly realized the way to actors grow up in the antithesis of how professional soldiers grow up i mean actors think they're focused entirely on themselves they have to be um the world you know the sun rises and sets on their ass um, and it's all about, it's all about me, 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 and how many lines have I got and how's my hair? Well, that's the antithesis of how a professional soldier looks at things. What he thinks about are the mission, the survival of the unit and the survival of the guys on left. The last thing he thinks about is himself. 
Um, and so that was really a dichotomy. And, and I had to teach it. And I had to, more importantly, and this is the reason my full immersion method works, I had to demonstrate it so that they could see the difference. And uh, actors are kind of like dry sponges, you know. Uh, you, you pour on the good stuff and they swell and they grow uh, because they want to, especially the good ones. Um, and, and so what I developed was, and anybody who's ever been in basic training or firefighter training or a police academy knows what I'm talking about here. Um, I began with PT, physical training. I wore their asses out. And the reason I did that was to reduce them to a low common denominator so that everybody was the same. Nobody's special. Everybody's going through the same pain, the same amount of sweat, uh, the same amount of exertion and effort. And that takes a little bit of the, the uh, wind out of their sails. Suddenly they realize they're nobody special at all. All they've got to do is find out how to, you know, find an effective way to avoid that white-haired bastard. You know, I mean, that's and, – and once I've got them there, once I've got them listening and paying attention and not thinking about themselves, then I can start to teach. And, and what I found was the, the really good actors, the really dedicated actors – uh, ate it like candy. They loved it. They loved the experience. They saw it as a learning experience. It opened their eyes. It, it gave them uh, psychological and emotional insights, which are the tools they use in acting. Uh, and they were great. Um, and and I, I guess we've trained about 800 of them now. Um, the only the downside is that occasionally you run into actors uh, who aren't in it for the art. They aren't in it uh, to be storytellers and to be communicators. They're in it to be stars. And those guys are a waste of time and space. Um, I can't train them because they'll lie to me. And, and nothing I tell them will last more than the time it takes to listen. Um, fortunately, there's been many, many fewer of those than there have been the serious guys and gals who've listened and paid attention and learned. Right. Yeah, I know. I mean, your whole platoon cast was phenomenal, but one that really stands out to me is Johnny Depp. Because if you want to, you want to talk. Like, I mean, you you say about this yourself. You you are hired by Hollywood to be kind of to be Dale Die, and then you have Johnny Depp, who's this chameleon that can be anything that's asked of him. Yeah, Incredible. yeah. He's 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 pretty interesting. Uh, he's a little he's a little mimic, and uh, and he he gets these things, and he's got the courage. Uh, to try them and show them on screen. Um, and he does it from such an intelligent place. Um, he's, he's a very, very smart guy. Uh, and he was one of the ones who really got what I was trying to teach when I had him in the jungle in, in uh, the Philippines. Yeah, that's a funny, uh, I guess, loop around. Um, one of my fellow cast members in, in Terminator, and just for the li people listening, uh, where I worked with Captain Die was the Terminator 2 stunt show in Universal Studios. We opened one in Japan, and Captain Die put us through a, a short, I would say probably pretty gentle version of his boot camp. But one of my fellow stuntmen, Damian Bryson, just doubled Johnny Depp for Pirates of the Caribbean, this last movie he did. Yeah, Damian's a great guy. I remember, I remember all of you very well. We did uh, uh, T2 3D uh, themed entertainment uh, and where we taught the cast. 
um, in uh, Orlando, in uh, here in Hollywood, and then in Osaka, Japan, which is the one you were involved in. Yeah, and your wife Julia was uh, our director for the whole show. She's she's the real drill instructor. <laughs> yeah, and I want to just talk about it very quickly. I meant to put this uh, earlier in the conversation, but. Um, when I had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman at the end of the interview, I asked him if he recommended a book, and one of his his books that he recommended was Backbone by Your Wife. Yeah, Julia Julia worked enormously hard on that uh, book, and it is really, really an inside look at small unit leadership. Uh, she she stayed away from the officers and the and all that. She went to corporals and lance corporals and young sergeants and said, look, tell me about leadership. Give me some examples of what you did in the sandbox or, or on other deployments or back in the States and, and how you became successful and, and how you view leading other people. And, and they, were, they were just so anxious to talk to her about this. It was not something they had ignored. This was something they lived with. This is something they paid attention to. And they were so glad to talk to Julia because she was asking the low-level, not even middle managers. These weren't senior NCOs. These were the young NCOs, non-commissioned officers, who get it done, who do it from day to day, and who face all of those personal problems, personnel problems, uh, and leadership problems. And, and she came out with just a magic book. Dave's a fan of it. I'm a fan of it. Uh, and it's called Backbone. Yeah, well, I'll just reiterate that. That's two episodes now that Backbone's been mentioned, and I will definitely put it on the on the show notes again. But I right. I haven't read it yet, but I will be reading it 100%. As a firefighter, I haven't risen through the ranks because I keep moving departments <laughs> like a gypsy. Um, but I'm I'm embedded now, so but I am you know one of those low level you know, and I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way. But I'm a, I'm a fireman. I'm not an officer at the moment. But I, sure. I, I like to think of myself as a leader in some respects as well. So I think that would probably pertain to, you know, guys that haven't got a bunch of bugles on their uh, shirt yet that, that want to drive their department home. Absolutely. You read it, and if, if you pay attention, you'll pick up these little gems of, of low-level leadership that just work magic. So um, read it. Hurry up. Why yes, yes sir. <laughs> All right. Okay, so I want to come back to um, – platoon just for a second was it was there any kind of uh, moments of being uncomfortable with the what what seems like the the realism of, of the set and and the explosions that you you guys had set did that take you back to vietnam at all when you were filming yeah it did i mean there were there were moments where both oliver and i because we were the two actual veterans uh, combat veterans on the set um there were moments I can remember in the village uh, scene uh, where um, Lieutenant Wolf and, um, or uh, uh, rather, uh, Sergeant Barnes and Sergeant Elias get in a fight. Um, we, the casting people, had gone down to Manila. Uh, we shot everything in the Philippines. Uh, had gone down to Manila and gotten real Vietnamese uh, who, who had come into the Philippines as refugees after Saigon fell um, and, and cast them and brought them up to be the villagers. And they were right at home. They knew all about this. And I remember we were, we were trying to move them around and put them where they needed to be, and they were gabbling in, in Vietnamese, which is a very tonal language. 
And and Oliver and I, I mean, it, it, the hair just stood up on the back of my neck. And, and I looked at Oliver and he looked at me and we just stopped. And we walked off of the set, went over and sat down on, the, on a rice paddy dike. Didn't say anything. We didn't have to. We knew what it was. All of that, just hearing that language, being surrounded by that language, just brought it all back to us. Um, there were there were a lot of moments like that. I can, I can remember we were shooting a night scene, uh, a night ambush, and um, the idea was that we had fog in there, which frequently you see in in triple canopy jungle, and and two North Vietnamese Army soldiers were to merge out of that fog. Well, I'd been working 16, 18 hour days, and uh, and I was pretty exhausted. But I was sitting right next to the camera, and I had an M16 rifle loaded with blanks uh, between my knees uh, because sometimes Oliver would want me to add off-camera fire to juice the scene and juice the emotions. And I went to sleep with my head leaning on the on the uh, flash suppressor of the of the M16, and uh, the scene began to roll, and I heard action, and I looked up. And as I looked up, I saw these two actors playing North Vietnamese Army soldiers coming out of that fog, and I panicked. I threw the rifle up into my shoulder, and Oliver reached over and grabbed it and pushed it down so that I didn't, I didn't disturb the scene. But I was right back. I was going to open up on those guys. Um, so, yeah, there were moments throughout filming uh, when stuff like that happened. Yeah, and then you played uh, Captain Harris in the movie as well. I did the heroic and very handsome company commander <laughs> by the name of uh, by the name of uh, Captain Harris, and that was really by accident. Uh, Oliver had seen me teaching, and he said, "You know, you 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 need you're perfect for this. Just get in there and do what you do." Um, and I did, and I was very fortunate. Um, the critics, uh, who were all over Platoon, obviously, as we began to gain momentum and attention. Um, had some very nice things to say about me and and what I had brought to the uh, to the scenes uh, of the movie in which I played, um, and and that kind of uh, uh, gave a huge boost to what was at that point, whether I wanted it or not, a burgeoning acting career. Yeah, it's funny actually. I ended up working with Oliver Stone myself, and in a totally different capacity. I wasn't side by side with him. I was just a a glorified extra. They hired a bunch of uh, real firefighters in LA to uh, work on the World Trade Center movie about the Port Authority guys that actually survived the collapse. Um, so uh, yeah, that was that was interesting. I hadn't really worked on on a high budget movie before. I'd done some TV and lots of live stunt shows, but but uh, yeah, I got to work with him very briefly. But, uh, Dictionary filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, really is. yeah. I can't say I ever agree with him politically. Um, in fact, on the set, they used to call me John Wayne and him Ho Ho Chi Minh. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but he's a visionary filmmaker, and he taught me a lot and gave me huge breaks. So I'll always be grateful for that. Right. Now, I want to go on to, to one of, I'm not maybe not your next movie, but the next, uh, the big one. Um, I know there's a, a great story, and I'd love to hear it from, from actually from you, but the story of how you uh, conducted the boot camp for Saving Private Ryan and how you correct me if i'm wrong this is the story that's been told you kept the uh the one group together and then matt damon came in later is that correct yeah it is um we we made it we being um uh, steven spielberg and i made a decision 
uh, not to include Matt Damon, who played Private Ryan, um, in the uh, training that I did for Tom Hanks and and um, uh, Jeremy Davis and and uh, uh, all of the other Tom Sizemore and and uh, uh, Rablisi and and all the other guys. We we made a decision not to include him because we knew how well my training works. Um, and if we had put him in training with the rest of the actors, they would have bonded. It's, it's going to happen. Uh, that's part and parcel of why I train the way I do. And if that happened, uh, the performance when they met each other um, would have been a false note. And we both knew that, so we decided not to include Matt. Uh, and, uh, and, and, but I, I still had to get him trained. And so later on, uh, once the initial training of the main cast was over, I took Matt aside and, and, uh, ran him through some, he had to learn how to handle a 2.6 inch rocket launcher, bazooka, and a number of other things. And so I ran him through an abbreviated, uh, solo sort of, uh, training syllabus after the main training syllabus was over. And how long was the boot camp for the rest of the cast? Uh, we had him in the, in the field for eight days. Um, and I had Matt for about three days. Okay. Cause I know Tom, Tom Hanks is, uh, scene where he goes around the corner and then breaks down. Uh, I mean that to me as, as a viewer was, was as real as anything I'd ever seen on screen before. Mm, mm. Yeah. And, and Tom's been very kind and kind to uh, credit me with giving him some insight some emotional, psychological insight as to uh, what he might be feeling, what he might be thinking, um, and and I think um, I think it helped him. It helped him get where he needed to go for that scene. Yeah, yeah, and I know the uh, the opening D-Day landing, the Normandy landing. That that I think that was uh, literally a, a a paradigm shift in in theater after that too. Yeah, I I got my Eisenhower fix that day. I'll tell you, we had we had about. <laughs> We had about 800 to 1,000 uh, Irish um, sort of National Guard Territorial Army soldiers on the beach, uh, 14 armored vehicles and seven boats at sea. So it was uh, it was a zoo. And, and once we rolled it, there was no use standing there waving your arms and yelling cut. That wasn't going to happen. They were going to go straight through this thing. Yeah. No, I think one and of that's, the, I'm sorry. Go on. No, it's, it's just, uh, I was about to say, that's one of the reasons I had to teach them to reload and operate their own weapons uh, and carry extra ammo because we couldn't stop to, you know, have some armor run in and reload an M1 for them. I think one thing that I took from uh, watching the film that I'd never really seen before, maybe it was present in Platoon, but it seemed far more poignant in uh, Saving Private Ryan, was the fact that you'd get to know a character and then all of a sudden they just get shot. And you're like, wait a second, the good guys always survive in, in these, these movies before. And it just showed the futility or, or you know, the, the senselessness of, of the loss of life in, in combat. Well, it's neither futile nor senseless, uh, but it is random. Okay, that's a better word. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. But, but again, so, so you get vested in a character when you watch a, a movie. And before they protected that character, okay, this is, this is a, a central figure in right. the script. But now, if he's hit, it's always in the shoulder, and exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. So now the guy's gone. You're like, okay, that that sucked. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, that brings me to to the the next big project, and and there's a story again between us with that. 
when I was uh, out of drama school uh, and really before I got into the stunt side, I was stuck in that vortex of being told by agencies that they like my work, but go get another one. They'll come and watch it and then they'll sign me and then not be able to get work because I didn't have an agent. Um, and I'd actually submitted my resume to this project called Band of Brothers, um, which obviously you worked on. And then when we met in Japan, you know, years later, you'd said, if you'd known me, I would have, I would have, you know, been a good fit. So that initially was always like this awful haunting experience for me. But then now as a fireman, I realized I was never destined to be, you know, on screen anyway. But so, so tell me about how, how Band of Brothers came, came into your life. Well, I was down on Ventura Boulevard in um, Los Angeles buying a suitcase, and I can't remember why. Um, but my cell phone rang, and it was uh, Steven Spielberg. And he said, uh, look, I've got something. Uh, can you meet me? Uh, and I said, you're Steven Spielberg. You're damn right I can meet you. <laughs> and, so I bought the suitcase, and, uh, and then I, uh, I went to uh, Universal Lot uh, into Amblin, and in 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 uh, an office there was Tom Hanks and a couple of producers and some people from HBO. And they said, look, um, we are going to do a uh, miniseries, 10 hours for television, uh, based on uh, a book called Band of Brothers. And I said, oh, uh, I, I know that book. I know that book very well. Uh, Stephen Ambrose. And they said, yeah, that's right. And I said, great. How can I help? And they said, well, it's going to take about a year to get this done, um, and, but we're going to do it, and we're going to do it in England, uh, and we want you to design and train the actors. Uh, there will be as many as 40 or 50 of them, um, and we want you to be the primary consultant for all the department heads, uniforms, weapons, everything else. Um, how's that sound, Captain Die? And I said, well, uh, that is not a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. I'm ready. Uh, what do I do here? Where do I sign? And so uh, we began the process of assembling uh, what it took to do Band of Brothers. Um, I uh, was able to take the entire cast um, into a place called Longmore Camp uh, in the U.K., which is a, 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 a British military reserve base, um, and set up the training. Before, before I did that, I actually assembled a unit of Germans, uh, and we all got into German uniform, and I taught them German weapons and tactics uh, for a week. And then I sent the Germans away, and I brought in the Americans. And, uh, and we trained them very, very uh, hard um, because I knew that we had a big one here. And the neat thing about a miniseries is that uh, you've got time to explore the characters. You've got 10 hours. Um, and so I wanted it to be absolutely on the mark, as spot on as I could get it. So we did an enormous amount of historical research. We trained hard um, up to and including uh, the British gave us access to their number one parachute school uh, at Bryce Norton. And we bust the entire cast up there and sent them, went them, uh, put them through ground school for parachuting. The only thing they wouldn't let me do is actually get them out of the door of an, air, of an airborne aircraft. Uh, that was insurance problems. Um, but we did everything else. We did everything short of that. 
And uh, it was one of the most marvelous training experiences I ever had. I had about six of my own cadre, my, my NCOs and officers who were with me. And, uh, and we were able to pay strict and close attention to everybody in that film. Um, we knew we had magic uh, about halfway through it. And to this day, um, I think it, it remains one of the things I constantly hear about. I mean, all of the Band of Brothers actors uh, get together once a year. We have a reunion. Um, I got this great opportunity to play Colonel Bob Sink, uh, who is the commanding officer of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment. Um, so all of the uh, all of the stars had aligned, and uh, and of course we I don't know won something like 13 Emmys, um, but it was magic, and I, I uh, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in a long and varied and lurid career. Yeah, I would say it was my favorite. Uh, piece of film slash television full stop I mean no question the other the band uh, Saving Private Ryan and Platoon are, are, are up there Hacksaw Ridge I saw recently was phenomenal but Band of Brothers will always be my favorite hands down yeah 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 and and you're you're among a huge amount of people all over the world uh, I was in Bastogne uh, uh, earlier this year uh, they invited me over and and uh you know, I there were like 2,500 people in the snow and cold lined up just to shake my hand or have me sign a picture or sign a poster or, you know, get my picture taken with them. Um, and when something like that happens to, a, you know, a loser like me, uh, you know, that that tells you you did something special. And we certainly did with Band of Brothers. Now the uh, most of the original guys were still alive at that point, weren't they? So were they involved? A lot of in- them were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, Steven made sure that uh, Steven Spielberg made sure that as many of them as possible, as many of the actors who were portraying real characters uh, who were still alive, uh, spent as much time on the phone or, or visits or whatever we could uh, to connect them up. And I monitored all of that. Um, because I knew that we were going to have to depart in some areas from what actually happened for dramatic license. Um, but the, but the guys, they, they were all these really good up and coming sort of B list actors. None of them were stars at this point. Um, and so they were, they were the serious guys. They were the storytellers. They were the one, the ones who wanted to do this right. And so those, uh, you know, guys like, uh, uh, Bill Garnier and, and, uh, Babe Heffron and, and a bunch of others, you know, were, were there and, and they weren't there all the time we were filming, but, but they came to see us when we were training and, and, uh, and they were an enormous help. Yeah. Their, their personal testimony at the end of each episode was just heartbreaking to see, you know, them reliving that story in their mind and their eyes kind of tear up was, was, you know, about as moving as anything I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is one of the things I'm trying to do with this new movie. Um, uh, I am I'm about to I'm raising money, seed money for a film called uh, No Better Place to Die, uh, which is I hope will do for the 82nd Airborne uh, in World War II what uh, Band of Brothers did for the 101st. Um, it's an extraordinary movie, and uh, and I'm I'm sort of playing off what we did with uh, with Band of Brothers because. Uh, this will be a theatrical release, uh, 120 minutes rather than 10 hours for television. But um, but I think I can do it. 
I think I combine I can combine elements of um, the uh, opening sequences of Saving Private Ryan with all of the in-depth coverage that we did in Band of Brothers. Um, and uh, I've been trying to do it for years, uh, James. And uh, I wrote it. Uh, I want to direct it. It has to do with the fight of a cobbled together group of uh, 82nd Airborne paratroopers at uh, Lafayette, uh, a bridge uh, which had to be taken and held by the paratroopers or the Germans would have bombed right across it and blown uh, the Americans, the allies off the landing beaches. Uh, so it was crucial to the success of D-Day. Uh, and it was a story that, uh, you know, I had I'd known for years and I always thought, um, it, it was a microcosmic look at, um, what can happen when small groups of, of motivated individuals get together and the big plan goes in the crapper, but these guys know what has to be done and they come together and they do it. Uh, and, and no one had ever examined that fight on film. Uh, and I said, well, I should. And so I wrote it. And after I wrote it and backed off a bit, I said, well, you know, um, after the only way to really make this the beauty, the blockbuster that it needs to be is if I direct it. Now, I've directed some second unit stuff and so on and so forth. But the budget is up around 20, 25 million dollars. And I was having a, an enormous amount of trouble um, getting people to trust me with that much money, uh, despite my record of success and so on and so forth, because I would now be the guy who said how the money gets spent. Um, and so uh, I, I, I fooled with it for about four years off and on, really trying to do it in the traditional Hollywood fashion. Uh, and I was unsuccessful. So um, I decided, you know, the hell with it. Uh, those paratroopers in June of 1944 who dropped in um, and took Lafayette and held it against incredible German uh, attacks, uh, they adapted, innovated, and overcame. And that, by God, is what I need to do with this picture. And so we started this, um, we, we started a crowdfunding thing. Um, and it's in existence right now. I'm sure you'll put it in the, in the show notes. Um, but, but one of the, one of the things that I decided to do, and this, this goes to, uh, your, your question or your comment about the vortex of what, what I've, I've showed this, I've, I've understood for, a, for many years because I get constant emails and phone calls and letters that there's a huge pool of talented military veterans out there trying to break into showbiz, either as actors or technicians. And because they started a little later and because they, you know, haven't done what would be considered an apprenticeship, they have a hell of a time demonstrating their talent um, in motion pictures and television. And I said, well, you know, look, let's do it this way. Let's make No Better Place to Die, a movie about veterans for veterans and done by veterans. So I am bound and determined to put as many real veterans in front of the camera and behind the camera as I can. Uh, I want this to be a kind of a showcase and show Hollywood what talent is out there. Uh, it's a long, hard slog, James. Um, getting somebody to trust us, you know, showbiz is the biggest crapshoot in the world. Um, and getting somebody to, with deep enough pockets to trust us um, is a long uphill slog, 
But what I'm seeing, and this this goes back to that great groundswell of, of populism that I was talking about, what we're seeing is the support we're getting um, and the veterans who are just coming out of the woodwork and saying, what can I do? I'll dig ditches. I'll pour coffee. I'll be your tea bitch. Whatever, whatever you need me to do, uh, I want to be involved in this because this is our shot. This is our time. And so um, we're, we're raising the seed money, and we hope that the money we raise will help us with admin costs and, most importantly, will prove to people with deep pockets um, who, can, who can invest in this sort of thing. Uh, that that we have that popular support, that we have that groundswell, and this will be a huge money maker if they'll come in uh, with enough money to help us get it made. So uh, I, I segued right the hell into what I wanted to talk about there, uh, and so and so that's what we're doing. We're we're reaching out to everybody I can. I'm I'm doing every podcast, every interview, um, to try to explain this to people and to elicit their support. Uh, monetarily uh, or just physically, help us build the buzz, uh, talk about this project, investigate this project. It's all there um, on an Indiegogo page, uh, No Better Place to Die. And you're going to read the philosophy. You're going to read what we're trying to do. Uh, we're bound and determined to give some of the profits, if any, back to uh, veterans' causes. Um, I, I want this to be proof um, that we can we can do things without having to bow and kowtow to the way Hollywood normally does things. Yeah, well, I think this is a great opportunity as well for for action. You see, social media flooded with support our troops and you know American yeah, flags yeah. and that kind yeah. of thing, but that's not doing anything. So the, no, what, it isn't. What great and way vet, to honor? Believe me, the, believe me, the veterans know that. <laughs> I'm uh, sure they do. So, so this is an opportunity, I think, uh, as you say, to, to put uh, words into action. Okay. Well, I will definitely post that link and I will continually share that project as well and see if you know my small project can be part of the jigsaw puzzle that will help push it forward. And if you do need an English person that's really good at falling over <laughs> for the project, you just let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So thank you so much for, for giving us all your time. I got a couple of very quick questions for you and then we'll, we'll uh, let you get on your way. Um, okay. So I just want to talk briefly about books. Normally I ask what books do people recommend, but I want to give you the opportunity to talk about the books that you've written because I went to list them and there were so many. Um, so which, which books have you, have you got out there and which would be your, let's say your top three to recommend for people to, to read? Well, I think I think uh, they probably ought to take a look at uh, Run Between the Raindrops, uh, which is a Vietnam story. Uh, I would love to recommend the file series, the Shake Davis Adventures. This is a, a single character that goes through, I think there's seven books out there now. Um, it's called the Shake Davis File Series. Uh, they're each a file, like Laos File, um, Aztec File is the most recent one. Uh, Beirut file and so on and so forth. So they're all they're all military themed, uh, with a single character as the protagonist and kind of like um, Lee Child and Jack Reacher. So I'd recommend um, the file series books. Um, I'd recommend uh, Run Between the Raindrops. Uh, and we're about to bring out uh, a reissue of one of my earlier books uh, called Duty and Dishonor, which is a uh, a very fascinating uh, Vietnam story. 
but it has elements of, of what was happening in the nation all throughout the uh, 1970s and, and uh, 80s. So those would be uh, the top three, James. Okay. And then the very last question then, um, where can people find you, um, find uh, your Warriors Inc. Uh, site, and uh, just remind us again of where to find uh, the No Better Place to Die website. Okay. Uh, no Better Place to Die uh, is an official, that's the name of the site, No Better Place to Die. Um, you can find that on Facebook. Um, and um, it will lead you to the Indiegogo uh, fundraising campaign. Um, I'm uh, on uh, three or four sites um, um, on Facebook, uh, Warriors Inc., uh, Dale Dye Group, um, um, Warriors Publishing Group, um, uh, Captain Dale Dye and Dale Dye. They're all on Facebook. There's all sort of uh, there's also all kinds of Twitter and, and uh, uh, Instagram sites, uh, none of which I'm aware of because I don't do them. I don't tweet, uh, but I have people who tweet for me. Um, so I guess, I guess uh, you know, if you just whack up the computer and, and uh, hit Dale Die and there are no better place to die in there, it'll take you all over Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm going to let you get on your way. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, we've given you know so many lessons and, and an amazing life story. Uh, it was a pleasure working with you before, and uh, I, I really love reconnecting, and um, I hope that we can uh, talk again in the future sometime. Oh, I do too, James. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, just let me know uh, when, where, and how on this thing, and I'll, uh, I'll publicize your uh, podcast, and and uh, hopefully we'll we'll get some people uh, sharing our conversation and our insights. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You take care.